So Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all the argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what, he, what, what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by, sorry, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, who we have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may greatly be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secured. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. There's a song that a football team and its supporters stole from the Broadway production called Carousel. It goes like this. I won't sing it with the appropriate accent, but it says, when you walk through the storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. You know how it goes. It was sung by uh, thousands and thousands of Liverpudlians with empty pockets because they paid a lot of money to watch their team play poorly but beat a woeful uh, Spurs last night by equally woeful Liverpool. But them's the breaks. Um, life sometimes is hard. Jerry and the Pacemakers stole the song from Carousel and uh, it's made them a million because it speaks to something in our hearts and the reality of life. Life is hard. There are waves that buffet us. Sometimes they are insurmountable. We feel like that we're going to be crushed. The loss of a loved one, the loss of a pay packet. There's these big uh, struggles in life, uncertainty about the future that buffet us like huge waves. But to be honest, it's not often that that happens in our lives. You can remember where you are when the big waves hit. You can remember sometimes the exact time and place you had the phone call from the doctors that you need to come back immediately because the results are serious and worrying. You can remember when you received that phone call. More often than not, we don't get the big waves. More often than not, we get the, the undercurrent of life that kind of is attritional. It's not the big waves that will kill you, so to speak. It's the, it's the low-level tug of life that is uh, corrosive and uh, pulls you under. And there are millions of people that experience tragedy and loss. And there are millions of people, maybe some of us in this room, that uh, experience that undercurrent of life that wants to pull you down, wants to pull you under. And the real question is, where's the hope? It's not in thousands of like-coloured uh, as in shirt-wearing football fans saying, hold your head up high, but where's the hope? Because the song will end soon, the experience will end, the stadium will come uh, to uh, an end as well. Where is our hope? Where is our hope with the waves, big and small, with the undercurrent that's strong or not so strong, depending on the strength of the water that you're in? 
Why do these things get us down so much? So uh, the sandpaper of attrition that can smooth us or can harden us. Where do we go? We're going to Hebrews 6, because Hebrews 6 describes one of the most important attributes of God's character, the God of the Bible, the God that we're exploring and worship, and uh, seeking to understand more of and enjoy more of as we get to know Him more. It describes His faithfulness. It describes His trustworthiness. I just want you to think about three words, necessary, uh, possible, practical. Trust in God, putting our life in His hands, is necessary, it's possible, and it's practical. Necessary, possible, and practical. Let's get our bearings. First of all, trusting God is necessary. Trusting God is, is necessary. Why? This book, the book of Hebrews, is written to Jewish people who've become Christians and they're tempted to not go forward. They're tempted to give up following Jesus and they're tempted to turn back to Judaism. And so the writer says, I need to explain to you how great and glorious Jesus is. Chapter 1, Jesus is greater than the angels. Chapters uh, 3, Jesus is greater than Moses. Chapter 4, Jesus is the new Joshua. Jesus is the new Joshua. He's greater than that. There should be a slide here. Have a little click. Jesus is greater than the angels, Moses and Joshua. He's greater than Abraham. And in the big central section of the book of Hebrews, 5 through 11, Jesus is compared now to the priestly order. He's greater than Aaron. Aaron died. Jesus is greater than any priest that you can think of in the Old Testament, and he's doing something new and wonderful. Something that's incomprehensible, but that was there in type and in shadow in the Old Testament, but now it's real. Whatever was done on earth, Jesus is now done in heaven. And because of that, he can be trusted. But right in the middle of the book, chapter 5, verse 11, to chapter 6, Verse 20, there is this parenthesis, there's brackets, there's a discursus, that's a fancy uh, word. The writer goes off on a bit of a tangent and there's brackets that begin and end with Melchizedek. That's how we can spot that this is a, a sidetrack. Because not only does the writer not want you to turn back to Judaism, he doesn't want any hearer to see how great Jesus is, to forget that. He doesn't want any hearer to lack assurance he doesn't want any Christian to let go of Jesus to think that that's even possible. And so in sentence 19, we've just sung about it. He says, Jesus, can you see sentence 19 of chapter 6? Jesus is an anchor for the soul. Jesus is an anchor for the soul. Now by inference, that means that we need an anchor. If Jesus is described as an anchor, yeah, he, it's a depiction that we need an anchor. And in chapter 6 and through to chapter 8, there's a description of how Jesus has gone through the earthly reality. He's through into the heavenly places. And because he's there, there shall we be also. We're safe and secure, not because of our grip strength, not because of the pull-ups we do, whether it's physically or by faith. We're safe and secure because we are linked undeniably, eternally to Jesus, who's the anchor for our soul. And it's also described here, he's the the forerunner, he's gone before us, he's the pace setter, he's the one we follow. And because he's done everything, so shall we be with him. It's about assurance that God is completely trustworthy. Now at this point, I'd love to have the best nautical illustration I could muster, but I don't have any. I am safe on dry land. There I was born and there I've remained. I've, I've, I've had one or two very dodgy experiences on the water, but I wish I had a nautical experience of a, a massive anchor 
that I could say, here's the experience I had, and, but I don't have one. I, had a, I have a near-death experience, but that's, uh, that's for the coffee cart later on. But if you are fishing in a lake, I am told that you need to take an anchor with you so that when you think this is a great place to fish, whether it's in a, a lake that's been man-made, whether it's in the ocean that's God-made, you need to say, this is where I'm going to stay for a couple of hours. I've got some tins of something I want to enjoy. And the fish, they're just a byproduct of my enjoyment, whether I lose or catch. But I'm going to put my anchor down, and I will be secure when I drop my anchor. I think that's how it works. I understand the physics. But what makes a good anchor? So the picture here, it's, that's really disappointing. There's a person. They are on a piece of scaffolding, and they're by a massive ship. And uh, you can just see the size of the person. It's got to be American because it's big. And there's a massive anchor there. And they're painting this huge, they've obviously done something naughty. They've got to paint the huge ship. Just to give you a picture of the size of the anchor, the older ones are even larger. But what makes a good anchor? This is not a joke. It doesn't have to be made from wood. It's hopefully going to be made from something that's uncorrosive. So it'd be made from metal, right? But what makes a good anchor? I put it before you that an anchor is a good anchor if it is attached to you or the vessel that you're in. If you want to be attached to this anchor of the soul, it has to be attached to you. It's a pretty rubbish anchor if it's in Portsmouth, but it should be on your boat. Yeah? An anchor has to be attached to you or to the vessel that you're in. Here's the second qualification for a good anchor, I think, because I'm not a nautical or fisherman person. The anchor has to go into the realm where you cannot go. An anchor should not just be in water. Yeah? If you're on a boat, you can experience the water if you want to get cooled down or if someone's messing around having a bit of a horse play and you get chucked into the water. The anchor should not just go into the water. You can go into water. The anchor has to be attached to you and the anchor has to go into the place where you cannot go. And that's the seabed. You could go there and remain there, but that wouldn't be a great fishing trip. But you get the point. The security is not in the water. It's a good anchor if it's attached to you and if it's gone to a place of security, if it's gone to a place of the seabed, the place where water does not move, where water does not change the rocks that are there. Everything changes around you. The sea can be turbulent or calm. The waves can be small or large. But when an anchor is attached to you and when an anchor has gone into the depths to a place where you cannot go and stay, there is the place of immovability, of permanence, of stability. There, that's what makes a good anchor. It's attached to you, and it's attached to a place of safety. The anchor that the writer is speaking about is not in the water. When it comes to assurance, what it means to be a Christian, you are absolutely safe and secure. Because in chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 9, the writer says this anchor is not on the land, Neither is it in the water. This anchor is Jesus, and he's in the heavens. And because he is there, and he's attached to you by faith, and you're attached to him, you're eternally safe and secure. Yeah. It's not on the land, it's not in the sea. This anchor is a person, and his name is Jesus, and he's in the heavens. But here's the irony when it comes to the anchor. We want, do we not, we want a person in our life who is balanced. We want a person in our life who is like ballast. We want someone that we can go to and trust. We want some immovability. When you're a child, you want your parents to be that person. 
You don't want to be brought up in a home where arguing is the, all, it's the normal experience. That's unsettling and disconcerting. You want to be brought up in a home that is idyllic, that doesn't exist, but you belong to be living in that home. And when you get older, it might be the doctor who becomes your safe person, it might be your boss, it might be your spouse, but whoever is your safe person, whoever is your anchor in this life will always let you down. Isn't that true? Whoever, if you have all your eggs in one relational basket, they always crack because people always let you down. This anchor that you need for your soul, you need someone who's outside of space and time, someone who is eternal, someone that's lasting, someone that has a proven track record, someone who's trustworthy, someone who is permanent, someone who is rock-like, someone who will never let you down, someone who is unchanging. You really do have no other options because the Bible teaches, the whole of life teaches us that trusting God is absolutely necessary. Why? Here are a few other options. Trust yourself. You think that, uh, I think and I thought that I could do a better job than God of ruling my life. That's a pretty arrogant place to be in. But I thought I didn't need an anchor. I thought I could just go ahead, rule my life, make my own decisions. Mistakes would be small, successes would be great and significant because I thought I would do the base job. I completely failed. Maybe some of you can resonate with that. With yourself at the helm, with yourself as the captain of the ship sticking in the North School world, which I know nothing about. It's a very lonely place to be and very soon your life will hit the rocks, sooner or later. You need someone who is immutable, someone who is all-powerful and all-knowing, someone who is all-seeing and all-good and someone who's completely trustworthy. You trust anyone else, any other human, they would always let you down. Psalm 103 says, As for man, the days are like grass, flourishes like a flower in the field. The wind blows it over and it's gone. Time remembers it no more. So 12, 13 red-shirted heroes. They'll be celebrated for a while on the streets of Liverpool. They'll be remembered in a scrapbook. But they will be forgotten, just like a flower. Men and women's glory passes and shifts. But Malachi 3 communicates what the whole Bible teaches. Malachi 3 says, Of God, I the Lord do not change. Therefore, O Judah, you are not consumed. This anchor, this solidity that we long for cannot be sourced in another human. It cannot be sourced in a career or a bank balance or an institution. They all pass and fade and fail. This anchor is immutable and all-powerful and all-knowing. This anchor, the anchor for the soul that the Hebrews writer speaks of is Jesus. And he's completely trustworthy. It's, 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 necessary, for us to it's necessary for us to be anchored to someone. Who will you trust with your life? It's necessary. He's the only anchor for the soul, sentence 19. Secondly, trusting God is absolutely possible. Trusting God is, is absolutely possible, secondarily. Now, why is it possible? Because why is God a safe place for us to entrust our life? Because he's completely trustworthy. He's completely trustworthy. God demonstrates his trustworthiness to the main character that is referenced in Hebrews 6, which is Abraham. God demonstrated his trustworthiness to him, and God demonstrates his trustworthiness to us by demonstrating his trustworthiness to Abraham in his life. And so the background to Hebrews 6 is the life of Abraham. That's uh, Genesis chapter 11 through to about 22 and a bit beyond. Look at uh, sentence 13. 
of uh, Hebrews 6. That's where the focus begins. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, and then off he goes. When someone gets married, there's be, there'll always be a solicitor or a notary or a, uh, an honorable person that has to say, I was there, I heard the right words, I'm going to codify that in a, in a witness statement, which is a marriage certificate. When you want to buy a house, it takes an awfully long time to speak to some people in this room. It's very, very difficult in England. The Americans are better, the Scots are better. But we are very, very slow. You need a solicitor, someone to sign off and to say, yes, I recognize I've got the right funds and it's going to be okay. But when God wants to make a promise, who does he go to? Who does he ring up? No one, because no one is as great as he. No one is as faithful, trustworthy, or permanent, or everlasting as he. And so he swears by himself. That's the background to these sentences. And it's very re easy for us to, to encounter Abraham and Sarah, this, this, two, this wonderful couple in the book of Genesis, and think, well, I'm here, and they're way up here when it comes to trusting God. I'm small, and they are great. They're heroic. They're in the Bible. They must have been absolutely heroic characters. And they appear so far removed from our experience of what it means to trust God. If that's you, can I remind you of the story? They are not spiritual giants. There's someone who did not trust God's goodness. They were unsure that he would come through for them. And so let me remind you of the story that they are not sterner stuff than you or I. They're not spiritually in the Premier League and we're in the First Division. I had a lot of football references this morning. Sorry about that. But in Genesis 11, as the story begins, God came to Abraham and he called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, out of Mesopotamia, modern-day Turkey, out of that, that direction and said, I want you to follow me. I want you to trust me. I want you to take me at my word. And I want, to, uh, I want you to go out not knowing where you're going to go. And I'm going to make you into a great land. I'm going to give you a great land. I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to make you into a people that's so vast. It's going to be like counting stars in the sky and sand on the seashore. And by the time you get through Genesis 12 and into Genesis 15, Abraham is wrestling with God to say, you've made these great promises. I'm 100 years old. My wife is in her 90s. It's been 25 years since you sent me out of Ur of the Chaldeans, out of home. I've left everything for you. And you have not come through yet on your promises, God. And you can just imagine Sarah saying, thanks a lot, husband. This is a wild goose chase. God has not come through for us. He's not trustworthy. He's not good. Let's go back home where we had a good life with a load of servants. We were doing really well. We were middle class. We were shopping at Waitrose. We went to the Derby once a year. Our life was fine. Then you said we had to follow God and he's left us. And in Genesis chapter 15, God reveals himself to Abraham in the most profound way 25 years later after he called him away from home to say, trust me, and I'll tell you where you're going to end up later. And Abraham has the audacity to say, in Genesis 15, how do I know? How do I know that you're going to come through on what you said? And God says, let me show you. And in Genesis 15, with no solicitor, no notary, no judge, no parent standing by at the wedding ceremony as the certificate is signed. God makes a covenant with no one else but himself. And a corridor is made of animals. Every animal is cut into apart from birds. There's a heifer. There's some birds. There's some other animals there. 
because that's how a covenant was not signed in the days of old in the ancient Near East. They were cut. To cut a covenant is to say, if I do not come through on the promise that I've made to you, may I be as these animals. May I be split in two. Because God is cutting a covenant, not with Abraham, but with himself, because there's no one greater to whom he can make a covenant with. It's a timely challenge for us as a culture that loves the immediate. Someone in our house received a text from a friend this, morning, uh, this week, and because they didn't respond within minutes, another text came saying, are you okay? Are you there? We live in a culture of the immediate. It's, it's quite worrying. It's, it's kind of desperate. But it's the world in which we live. But just imagine whether you're a teenager waiting for a text to come back or whether you're an adult longing for a letter to come back. Just imagine waiting 25 years for God to answer a promise. Would doubt not loom large in your mind? And so Abraham has the audacity to say in Genesis 15, 25 years later, will you give me this land? Will you come through on this promise? I haven't had a child and I'm getting really, really old. How do I know? And God says, I'm going to walk through these pieces, not you. I will make this promise with myself and I'll demonstrate it in front of you. And so through these animal pieces, these animal carcasses, God passed in a localized theophany. God presents himself in a real way in a smoking torch and there's a fire pot saying, you can take this promise to the bank. You can trust me. Kings will come from you, Abraham. I am prepared to be cut off for you. And Abraham didn't have a clue what it would cost God to keep his promise and prove his trustworthiness. But he was cut off. Isaiah 53 says that. Just as animals were torn in two, Isaiah could see before Jesus walked the earth 800 years before, the king would come and he would be cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of his people. Jesus was abandoned. God was willing to do this to come through on his promise that Abraham would not just grow numerically as Jewish people, there would be millions of people engrafted into the people of God, into the Jewish uh, tradition, but who trusted in Jesus. It's not about your ethnic identity, it's whether you know Jesus personally, intimately, by faith. But God says, I will be cut off for you. I will put myself on the line for you. I will be split apart for you. I will be smitten for you. So yes, I will give you your land. I will make you into a great nation. I will protect you and bless you. You can take this promise to the bank. 25 years, I can still be trusted. Abraham, you can look at all other things in your life, God would have said, I'm sure. Look at them all. I'm far more reliable than any of those. Remember your servants, remember your bank balance, remember your life back in Ur, you can trust me. This life will not be what is best for you. The next life will be far greater. My life, my promises are safe in my hands. And you are safe in my hands. That's the challenge we uh, have to wrestle with. It's the foundation for our life. If it's anything other than Jesus, it will perish. Only Jesus is the anchor for the soul. If everything, if everything in our life is ordered and yet we don't trust Jesus, we're not tethered to him, we are not secure. If we are tethered to Jesus as an anchor by faith in our hearts, our life can be going to pot, but we're eternally safe and secure with him because he's an anchor in the soul. 
There's nothing higher than me, God says to Abraham. You can trust me. What's your alternative? Everything else is shifting sand. You have to trust God. It's necessary. And it's completely practical. That's the final point. Okay, we've been a bit high, been a bit remote. What does it look like day to day? If you were to trust God for the first time, if you wanted to trust God more, here are three things that it would look like. How can you trust God? Abraham does not trust God through gimmicks. He trusts God because he sees more of him through his life. Abraham became more and more faith-filled because he saw more and more of God's faithfulness. Do you see that? His faith grew, his confidence grew because he was schooled and disciplined in the school of faith. And it took decades and decades for God to teach Abraham enough of himself so that he could trust him, even risking the son of promise in Genesis 22. I'm convinced even if I have to slay my son, sacrifice him to God in worship, even if I do that, I'm convinced, I can take it to the bank, that God has the power to raise him from the grave. How did Abraham get such a great faith? Was he a great man? No. Tried to pawn off his wife twice. He was an Arthur Daly. He had shambolic faith, but he grew in faithfulness. He was faith-filled over 30 years of his life. Abraham's faithfulness, your and my faithfulness, comes on as we are filled more of faith, as we know more and more of who God is. We're filled up as we take bread and wine next week, as we share and meditate on God's character, we're filled up as God leads us through difficulty and waves of suffering, trusting him, small, macro, and also micro and mega sufferings. We're filled more as we hear of stories from our friends who are Christians saying, God is trustworthy in this situation. We're filled more of faith as we sing of the promises that we've forgotten from last Sunday, and we will forget by tomorrow, <laughs> next Monday. That's how you're filled up more, by looking away from yourself and looking again and again at God's faithfulness, contemplating Him, meditating on Him, enjoying Him, studying Him, learning of Him so that you might enjoy Him. That's how you're filled more and more full of faith. And so often it comes over decades, not immediately. No app to install so that you're a faithful person. No pill to take. No place to go to. It's a marathon. But it's the way God intends so that we're convinced of his faithfulness. You, you become faithful not through a gimmick, but by looking continually at Jesus. Secondly, if you want to trust God, you've got to make sure that, that uh, the promises that God makes always go deeper than your expectations. The promises God makes always go deeper than what you expect. In Psalm 37, it says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, rest on him, follow him, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. If you trust God, he will give you the desires of your heart. And you can think, that's brilliant. That's like a monopoly going around uh, past go. That's like a 200 pounds bonus. If I trust God, he's going to give me a merc. He's going to give me a relationship. He's going to give me a career boost. Trusting God is, is prosperity. That's not what it says. Trusting God will give you the desires of your heart. What do I long for? I long for things on earth. But as you are schooled by God in the school of faith, you find that your heart's priorities are increasingly congruent. They're the same as God's priorities. 
We want career, we want reward, we want comfort. But actually the means to an end, the real desire for my heart, and maybe for your heart, is significance. I want to be a person of significance. I want to be a person who's trustworthy. I want to be a person who has a bit of a reputation. I want to be someone who's accepted. So I conform to what people say, and hopefully sometimes. I want, I want to experience closure. I want to be known. Can you trust God? Can you trust the God of the Bible who knows the longings of your heart better than you know yourself? It's a key question to ask. All these things that the world offers, it's just a mud pie, says C.S. Lewis. Actually, you're designed to go to the beach. You're designed to know God deeply, to enjoy him forever. That's what you're made for. And all these things that the world promises, they just, they spoil your taste buds, but they prove that you're, they prove a longing for a greater kingdom. Thirdly, if you're going to trust God, it means, now this is the rub, you have to obey him unconditionally. You have to obey God unconditionally. You have to obey God tomorrow at work or in, in your home, knowing that it's going to cost you. You have to recognize that disobedience is very, very often the same thing as distrust. They're bedfellows, they're linked. What you're really saying, what I say by my actions is this, I'm afraid what I'm going to lose through obeying you is going to be greater than anything you're going to put back into my life through obeying you. I think it's easier that I disobey you because I don't really believe the gospel is what my actions show. That There's no way to sugarcoat it other than that. That's the truth of what's going on in my own heart. But if you trust yourself, you've also got to be your own reward. If you think I'm going to rule my life, I'm going to do a better job than trusting God, then actually you've got to give yourself a whacking great reward as well. And when that doesn't happen, so too comes disappointment. We were kicking this around in life group on Tuesday. We were saying it is hard to take Jesus at his word. So what about if he calls us to go somewhere or do something? It's okay if it's us as parents, but what about if it's your kids? It's okay if we, get to, if we lose our lives, if we're Christians, but what about our kids? What about if their life is hard? What about if God takes them away from us? We don't want that to happen. So it's easier for us not to, uh, just to mollycoddle them, just to protect them because they belong to us. And we know that's not true, but that's the honest place of how we function so often. We think disobedience is more attractive to us than obeying God no matter what it costs. We kind of say, Lord, I don't believe you can reward me as well as I can reward myself. But then the Apostle Paul has the audacity to write these words. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And God has revealed it to us by his spirit. God is no spoil sport. Your best life is not now, it is in the future. And that's only possible because there is an anchor for your soul whose name is Jesus. Look at him, says the writer to the Hebrews. Know that you are bound by him. He's gone to a place of security and safety and therefore you are absolutely assured. Your assurance should go through the roof because it's not about the strength of your grip but God's grip on you, and he never, ever lets go. Look at him cut off for you. Look at what Jesus promised, and look at the lengths he went to keep his promise. He always keeps his promises, and that, and that alone, as you look at him and away from yourself, that makes your heart great. 
and you can trust God in the day of small things or in the day of great prosperity. Let's pray.